0: The I O Intraosseous Vascular Access System from Teleflex is a complete solution for fast vascular access when you're facing difficult vascular access challenges or life-threatening emergencies. For more information, go to AeroEasyIO.com. G'day
1: there and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Todd Fraser. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Peter Lee about his article, Interosseous versus Central Venous Catheter Utilisation and Performance During Inpatient Emergencies, published recently in Critical Care Medicine. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks, Todd. Peter, the uh, interosseous cannula has been used in clinical practice for many years, but there seems to have been a resurgence in interest, particularly in adults in recent times. Why do you think that is?
2: Well, I think there, there are a number of reasons. First is ease of use. I mean, the biggest draw for the intra system is just very, very quick access and it's been shown amongst, or, you know, pre-hospital providers that, and even in the military that Establishing early access uh, with a simple drill and whether it's hand-operated or battery-powered, it sure is very, very quick and rapid access. And uh, getting into that, recruiting that marrow space is pretty automatic and it's very magical uh, how you can recruit a readily available venous plexus that in shock states and hemorrhagic states is veno venodilator on its own. So I think the biggest draw is really the first path of death. I mean, that's what really
1: drew us to it. Are there any barriers to its use? Because that does seem fairly intuitive that it would be a useful and rapid tool. Why do you think it's been so difficult to get this established in practice?
2: Good question. The barriers seem to be somewhere between the emergency department and inpatient services. I see so much literature in pediatrics and emergency medicine, the military, and you know, we're going back decades. For some reason, the inpatient services never is really just kind of rested on. Even blind landmark-guided central venous catheter placement, largely placed by you know uh house staff and training and mid-level providers, it's really unclear why that is. I think it's a combination of culture, usual practice, and also cost. You know, uh one of the biggest drawbacks and criticisms of using uh these brand new intravascular systems, just like the EVIO system by Bectec, it's the cost of the drill in each needle. So in comparison, these central venous catheter kits are a fraction of what a needle and a drill would cost. So, you know, that's one aspect. But I think really just behavioral momentum may be
1: the biggest barrier. You seem to hint that this isn't used as widely as it possibly could. Do we know anything about the uptake of this in general practice? It's
2: unclear. Uh, anecdotally speaking, I, you know, I have friends in neighboring hospitals in New York City at Roosevelt Hospital, St. Luke, and over at uh, North Shore LIJ. And, and I know the Palm Critical Care fellows do have intraosseous kits in their toolkit and, you know, they, they keep it in their code cart or in their utility drawers in, in the ICU. But to be honest, they all say that they don't really reach for it that often. It's really never a frontline thing for them. One of the, the reasons for this are they're not so clear on it's indications when it would be the most optimal and most useful, what sort of situations They all kind of have it as a backup device without really knowing when to use it as a backup almost. But if you really look at literature and guidelines from Critical Care Nursing Society and uh, the latest ACLS guidelines, they, they they really do help guide you as to where an intraosseous osseous needle would be the most effective. So I think in part, there's the comfort level and also lack of knowledge and education.
1: Peter, what were the objectives of your study?
2: Number one is to see if we educate our house staff, our rapid response or medical emergency team in its use with good effect, and also implement it hospital-wide during medical emergencies. And really, our, our primary objective when we decided to really run with this project was to see if there was a striking difference in first-pass success rates as compared to blind landmark-guided femoral central venous catheter placement. So that that was pretty much what we wanted to
1: look for. So the indication for placing the central access device was that you had inadequate peripheral access, is that correct?
2: Correct, yes. So when we approach a patient requiring... Critical care at the bedside. Um where, you know, of course, we have a regimented checklist. It's called ICRAST. I won't delabor going going through the entire acronym and I would sum, but basically the codes and RRTs and Med calls are usually run by senior house staff members and they go through a certain number of items on this checklist. And one is peripheral access. They feel that the peripheral IVs are inadequate, they're blown, they're too small for the purposes of resuscitation, then they would make the spot decision to get advanced vascular access, usually in the form of the central venous catheter.
1: In the study you recorded, I think that there was only about 10% of the medical emergencies that your team attended. Central access was attempted in. Was this low figure unexpected, or was that about what you had anticipated?
2: Not really. We we really didn't uh, you know going into this. We had a lot of our uh, the you know met call and and cardiac arrest data, but we never really had an idea of how often uh, advanced central venous access was used during these calls. So it's, it was a, it was somewhat of a surprise, but we actually expect the number to be uh utilization percentage to be a little bit higher. But in our hospital in the last, I think, three years, we have been noticing a decline in MET calls in patient cardiac arrests. Reason for this is, is unclear. It could be better recognition of sepsis protocols, sepsis bundles, hospital-wide and city and statewide. So It could be that. So there may be multiple factors at play there.
1: So as part of the study, patients were identified as needing central access. What was the process from that point?
2: Well, from that point on, members of the MET team that would be called the bedside would consist of two second or third year internal medicine residents who, you know, generally one would be a pulse checker, one would be uh, administering medicines, and the other one would be responsible for Obtaining the access, so the kit would be handed to them, and generally, uh, you know, by their second or third year, they would have some experience going through the ICU and on, on how to place landmark guided central lines. So the procedure would be you know they're usually supervised by a, a critical care fellow and attending. They would brief, very quickly sterilize the skin; it wouldn't be a full drap procedure. Usually, ultrasounds aren't, aren't available uh, during these emergency calls, and, and uh, they, they would just place landmark guided lines and. If they had a couple of failed attempts, or they just felt that they weren't able to do it, a more advanced or more senior house staff member, or fellow, or and attending would take over. That's kind of how it used uh, would go, and we would end up with patients getting stuck two, three, four times, going from one groin to the other. And I think that's the beauty of IO. And when when, when we rolled that out, we noticed that patients were getting access; they were getting meds a lot faster. And whether you know faster time to access and getting an epinephrine or a bag of fluid in a lot faster. Whether that led to better outcomes is kind of unclear. We were really weren't powered for that sort of study, but you know uh, we, we just did notice that the entire Met call, the whole scenario just ran a lot smoother once we did get access.
1: So the main primary endpoint was the first pass success rate. What was the result of this and what were the other major findings of your study?
2: Well, the, yeah, the first pass success rate was pretty remarkable. Uh, it, it was, uh, for the interest in drugs, patients, you know, uh, of which were 31, we noticed a 90% first pass success rate, uh, versus 37.5% first pass success rate for the patients who received central venous catheters. And the un there for the CDC was, uh, was 48. And obviously, this was statistically significant. Overall success rate, uh, you know, the gap narrowed a little bit, but it was still pretty significant. The overall success rate for the intraosseous patient was about 97%, followed by 81% for the central venous catheter patients, which says that with enough poking around and enough attempts, these patients eventually got a central venous catheter in their groin. But the question is at what cost? That You know, uh, we've had a, a few complications that were uh, associated with the central venous catheters, mostly arterial punctures, kink wires and whatnot, and we would go through a
1: couple of kits. Peter, what sort of training did the participants get in the insertion of the interosseous and the central venous catheters?
2: Right. So, yeah, like I was alluding to earlier, there's a monthly ACLS training session and. During this training session, we also give a little crash course on rapid response calls, med calls to, guess, to other hospitals. And basically, we go through different scenarios of patients who are hypoxic, going into tachyarrhythmias, the malignant arrhythmias, and whatnot. Afterwards, we, we have a one-hour training session uh, each month amongst the PGY2s and 3s. It's usually run by a chief medical resident, myself, another fellow, if should they be available. And we have a few of the senior residents who are going to be on staff that month for, for those emergencies. And basically, we have these plastic models of tibias and proximal humerus, along with training guns, uh, drills, and training needles. And I basically go over the the anatomy, the physiology of it, why we're using the intraosinous needles, the indications, where they're stored, just kind of go over some of the didactics. And then we do a thorough hands-on session, teach them how to clean and sterilize the area with just a little alcohol wipe or chlorhexidine wipe, landmark the area, and, and I probably stress that the most, and needle selection. So after that, I have them do a few drills on on the uh, the anatomic toys. And after that, I, I just have them go through the entire scenario without my interruption or any uh, any prompt. And I just kind of grade them on a piece of paper that we have, this grading sheet that we've been keeping um, with everyone's name on it. And that's kind of how we've been doing it. So I've been training everyone really the same way, everyone from the PGY2 level, from fellows all the way up to the attending level, so everyone really gets the same training.
1: One of the concerns that some practitioners have is around the complications associated with interosseous cannulae, but you found that that was actually a relatively insignificant problem. Can you tell us about that?
2: As far as complications go for interosseous cannulation, we didn't encounter too many the only major one that we really came across was extravasation and skin necrosis, and the patient needed and debridement around their uh, proximal tibia. She survived the emergency. She survived the surgery. She left the hospital, and everything uh, was fine. But you know, we can't obviously can't have too many of these in, in, in literature. This is very rare. But looking into root cause analysis, we determined, you know, in speaking with the operators who put the needle in. They weren't quite sure how the needle was seated, whether they hit bone, whether they went through and through. It was really unclear, and and this was early on when people were just getting trained with intraosseous access, so it might have been a bit of a a novice factor there. But we didn't have that sort of occurrence ever again. And looking back at literature, I mean, complication rates are super rare. Um, Everyone's biggest fear is a fat embolism, which we never saw. None of the studies that were ever done on intraosseous cannulation were powered enough to really assess the true rate of complications of this device. But the very real complications that, that you know, that we face were dislodged access from inadequate placement, pain. Uh, there was one awake patient who, you know, really needed IV access and who was very, very difficult, sick and combative. Pain is, especially during injection, is a real problem. And extraposition, skin necrosis, of course, uh, I I believe it's directly related to placement of the intraosseous needle.
1: Now, you also included a survey of the practitioners' views on intraosseous and central line use in that sort of scenario. What did that information tell you?
2: Basically, we we wanted to see what our residents and everyone who we trained the critical care fellows and the attendants, what, what their experience was like using this, whether they really felt that it was a little bit easier to use versus uh, central venous catheter. And it was actually pretty encouraging, despite the fact that they felt that sometimes the the kits weren't stocked appropriately at times. They were difficult to find because they were only on certain floors in the hospital. They felt that the use of the gun after a brief training session, which was about an hour, they felt that it was a lot easier to use. And their recall of successful first pass attempts using the I.O. gun was I know, of course, this is all recollection. They felt that they were more successful in using the IO needle rather than the traditional central venous catheter uh, placement.
1: Peter, can you share some of the safety tips around the use of an intraosseous device and how to make sure that we do avoid those uh, uncommon complications?
2: Yeah, uh, I think number one is is landmarking. This is what I keep telling my residents when we do the monthly training sessions during the um, MET calls and cardiac arrest the PLS training we do a special training just for introsity of catheter placement with some of the senior residents. And I stress again and again, I even throw my own leg on top of the table and make (laughs) me palpate my own uh, knee and my tibia. Like these are the bony ridges. These are the landmarks because if you're off, you're off by a lot and you're going into muscle. And once you're pushing in at the nephrine and any other product, really, you're you're really causing a lot, a lot of uh, problems in that, uh, in that area. So Landmarking, I think, is first and foremost the, the most away, uh, important way to ensure successful placement. And I have a lot of back and forth with the company that supplies us with the needles and the guns, and they prefer using the proximal humoral approach. In fact, it's actually FDA approved for the humoral approach as the go-to anatomic site, mainly because the cortex is very thin. The marrow space is actually pretty readily accessible and there's, there's a lot less resistance when, when you're pushing fluids and medicines in there. There's a cool YouTube video of, of a patient under a fluoroscopy machine and they injected contract dye. And you can see within a couple of cardiac cycles, it really dumped into the, the right atrium and, and the pulmonary circulation very, very quickly from the humeral access. We decided to go for the proximal tibia primarily because the landmark. And the target that you're going for is so much bigger than the proximal humerus. It's easily palpated. It's very, very easy for a, a novice to identify. And also during a cardiac arrest, when you have two providers doing uh, ACLS and chest compressions up the upper torso of the patient, it's really hard to kind of squeeze your way in uh, up to the humerus and, and try to you know, drill a needle in there. It's often a lot easier for one of the house staff members to just be at the lower half of the bed pop an IO into the tibia and, uh, and and do what they need to do from that end. So we're willing to sacrifice slightly slower flow rates for more successful access. And and to be honest, we, we've brought patients back, you know, using a tibial IO, just pushing epinephrine and Lasix and successfully intubating people, just using an IO. So I think that that is the number one thing is, is to make sure that you are landmarking vegetables properly.
1: Your study was conducted around two years ago. Now, what's your experience been with the intraosseous needle at your institution since the study?
2: It's actually become a little bit more mainstream. It's, it took a couple of years and then honestly trying to change behavior and implementing new devices and, and assuring quality and proper use within a hospital system, especially amongst trainees who rotate through the, the med team every month. My, my mentor and PI on the project, Samuel Aqua, he, he equates it to trying to steer, uh, a, a, an aircraft carrier in the ocean, you know, trying to change policy in the hospital. So we had a lot of pushback from nursing administration, a lot of safety people and QI people. Basically the process of drilling uh, needles into people's legs seems a little barbaric, seems a little, uh, uh, a little scary to them. But once we showed what we can do in a controlled setting and following data, they're pretty convinced. And honestly, at this point, whenever there is a cardiac arrest on the floor, I see an intern running to go get the you know, the I.O. kit from certain medical floors. They know exactly where it is. I quiz the house staff every now and then. Do you know where the kits are? Do you know what's in the kit? Do you know where to put them? And i got to say, it's pretty impressive. They're, they're all spot on. They, they've heard me the drone about it over and over again, and, and it's in their brains now. So I think it took two years. It took some time, but I, I think we've reached the masses. So I, I just hope it continues.
1: What do you think the next step is now, Peter? Do we have enough information to make the intraosseous the standard in this situation, or do we need to do more work? Do you think?
2: I definitely think we need to do more work. I think it's a little premature to start, uh, uh, you know, abandoning central venous catheters at this point. It's really, really depends on your comfort level, the cost of the drill. We, we, you know, outcome studies obviously are needed. We really need to show whether Early access and getting that epinephrine just a little bit quicker really changes outcomes. It may not, I think the biggest benefit to the, the intraocular device is, it, it's re- really, it's place is, is a bridge to resuscitation. It's a bridge to get the patient from a medical ward where, uh, you know, delivery of critical care is limited at best, just to get them to an ICU where a clean line, a clean central line in the, in the neck or the, or the, um, the clavien area can be placed with ultrasound under sterile conditions. These lines are, are you know, are more durable. They can they can last a little, little bit longer. So I, I think in the end, its utility will will be in getting a patient from point A to point B.
1: Peter, congratulations on the publication of your study. It certainly contributes significantly to the awareness of this uh, this technique. Um, and thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks, Dad. This concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care podcast. Please check out our website at wwwsccmorg care for more information and podcasts. For the Eye Critical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Todd Fraser.
0: The I O intraosseous vascular access system from Teleflex is a complete solution for fast vascular access when you're facing difficult vascular access challenges or life-threatening emergencies. For more information, go to AeroEZIO.com. Todd Fraser, MD, is an intensivist and retrieval physician based on the Sunshine Coast of Queensland, Australia. Dr. Fraser completed his undergraduate training in Melbourne before undertaking specialist training in hospitals in Geelong and Sydney. His specialist career has included time as a director of intensive care at Mackay Base Hospital in Queensland, regional director of training for CareFlight Medical Services, and as a staff intensivist and flight physician. Dr. Fraser has extensive experience in critical care education, including simulation, web-based training tools, examination preparation courses and instructional video The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions comments or ideas please email i Critical care at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.